I would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians at each of our delegate hubs and throughout the country, where many of our listeners will be based. This is a moment that requires leadership. China's signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born. With a failure to invest in renewables. I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. I just have two more words to say. Obama out. Hello, and welcome to this instalment of the Australian Crisis Stimulation Podcast for 2022. My name is Jacob Huth. In this series, members of the ACSS will host distinguished academics and industry leaders in talks on various national security topics. Our team has selected these podcast topics to provide insight and knowledge relevant to the ACSS Summit in December. Today, I have the privilege of sitting down with distinguished guest Fergus Hansen from ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, to discuss Australia's cyber capabilities, cyber resilience, and the national security strategic implications. Fergus Hansen is the director of ASPE's International Cyber Policy Centre. He is the author of Internet Wars and has published widely on a range of cyber and foreign policy topics. He was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professional Fulbright scholar based at Georgetown University, working on an uptake of new technologies by the US government. He has worked for the UN as a program director at the Lowy Institute and served as a diplomat at the Australian Embassy in The Hague. While working for philanthropist Andrew Forrest, He led the establishment of the Freedom Fund in London and the Global Fund to end modern slavery in Washington, D.C. He has been a fellow at Cambridge University's Ludipak Research Centre for International Law and the Centre for Strategic and International Studies Pacific Forum. He is a member of the board of directors of the Catherine Hamlin Fistula Foundation and Art Monthly Australasia. He is an advisory board member of the Cyber Peace Institute in Geneva. Welcome, Fergus. How are you? Great. Thanks for having me along. Awesome, awesome. I guess we'll get right into it. So, I've just introduced you with your bio, but do you mind giving the listeners a quick one-minute self-introduction and what is interesting you at the moment? Yeah, look, um, thanks so much. Um, So, basically, I run the International Cyber Policy Centre at ASPE, which is a non-profit think tank based here in Canberra. Uh, We've got a team of of analysts, they're both technical and policy, and essentially what we're trying to do here is come up with ideas for better public policy for Australia. Um, So that's what we work on, um, and really what we're passionate about um, right at the moment, I think the big thing we're focused on is the next cyber strategy uh, that the government announced it's going to be putting forward and feeding in some ideas for that. Awesome, awesome. Um, What is cyber resilience to you? Well, essentially, there's there's no real way to guarantee security in uh, in cyber terms. So you can, you can't be one hundred percent sure that no one's going to be able to break into your system or that you've got everything locked down perfectly. So what you basically have to do is anticipate being attacked and think through how you can recover as quickly as possible. So, for example. If all of your files were suddenly deleted on your laptop where you'd had all your university assignments or all your business data or whatever it is that's really important to you, how quickly would it? Um, how quickly could you get back up and running and operational? So do you have a backup that's stored, that's air-gapped and stored separately that you could just plug into a new computer and download onto your 
computer and get straight up and running. If you have a backup of your university assignment stored on a hard drive that's external to the internet and your computer gets wiped, you could probably get back up and running in five minutes. That's, that's someone who's really resilient and, you know, they're ready to get back up and running. But what if, you know, you had your backup was uh, corrupted as well? Do you have a second backup or do you have another way to, to access and get back up and running? So I think it's all about how quickly you can recover from an attack and, um, and get operational or try and stay operational ideally even when you are, are under attack. How do you see that conceptualization of resilience being implemented into the strategy you mentioned before? Well, I think what we're entering into now in Australia and around the world is a much more challenging international environment. So if you look at the war in, in Europe, um, if you had have asked people a year ago, you know, in Europe, how safe do you think you are? Um, is war, you know, going to come to Europe again? People would have, you know, laughed at you in face and said, well, that's preposterous. We're one of the safest places in the world and we're peace-loving people, uh, notwithstanding our history. Um, right now, they're they're having discussions about you know whether there'll be a, a nuclear war in in Europe potentially or or more broadly. So uh, the world that we've entered is very very different from the one that we might have thought about thought that we were in um, even just a couple of years ago. Um, because we're in that much more challenging international environment, it's really important that we harden our res- you know, our defences here in Australia, improve our resilience. And that means, you know, if we do enter a situation where there's potentially uh, armed conflict and we've had uh, lots of senior Australian officials and and ministers hint at this in the last um, little while, um, are we ready to engage in that kind of environment and make sure that our economy and our society can keep on functioning as smoothly as possible in that kind of environment? That's what I think we need to do in the next strategy. Brilliant, brilliant. We'll touch on those two big points um, in the next two questions. So just backtracking to where you were talking about data breaches and the like. So keeping in mind the recent high-profile cyber attacks like Optus and Medibank, why do you think current national security cyber policy is flawed and how can current political infrastructure improve to create a more resilient Australian cyberspace for both the public and private sectors and consequently for personal civilian use? Well, I think there's there's lots and lots of gaps and, and challenges that we've got at the moment. So just to give you a couple, though, if you look at um, the Optus attack, you had about half the adult Australian population's personal identifier, um, identity documentation stolen. Now, if you look at the, the mismatch there between the company's interests and the consumer's interests, they're quite different. So the company suffered a bit of brand damage. It, it's lost a lot of cu- customers, no doubt, to Telstra. Um, it, you know, it's had its brand trashed. Um, but in terms of who, who's going to pay the consequences of this um, attack, it's the customers. So if I'm an Optus customer and I've had my data stolen by a cyber criminal and that's been used to commit identity fraud against me, I'm going to probably have to spend several thousand dollars of my time and money fixing that situation. I'm going to have to replace my identity documents. That's going to cost me time in terms of showing up at the roads and traffic authority location and, and getting my, explaining to them why I need to change my driver's licence, getting you know paying for a new one, same, doing the same thing with my passport... Uh, and then if my if my identity is used to you know steal money from me from my bank, I'm going to have to go to the bank and say that wasn't me, and here's and prove that it wasn't me, uh, and then 
you know, have a, have a tussle with them to get my money back. So it's going to cost me a lot of money. So what we have there is a mis- misalignment of interests. The company is the cost that's borne from identity theft is borne by the customer and, and not the company. So the company doesn't have a strong enough incentive at the moment to protect that uh, sensitive customer data because they don't bear the cost if it's stolen. So they're collecting it all, but they're not protecting it in a way that is commensurate with the damage that it can do. If you had a situation that was reversed and said, for example, um, companies that have their data have customer data stolen have to pay the customer's compensation for the time and effort that will be involved in in remedying the situation, that would be an enormous incentive for companies to treat this data very differently and protect it much more securely. So there's a misalignment in incentives. Another one comes in the area of nation states. So if a company um, has its data stolen by a nation state actor, um, they might think, oh, this is fantastic outcome relative to a cyber criminal because nation states don't generally ask for ransoms. Um, North Korea is a bit of an exception there. But um, they're, not, they're not asking for a ransom payment, they're just stealing the data. So from a company's point of view, they might not even have to feel like they have to disclose to the public that they've had the data stolen. Um, there's, no, there's no problem. Everything keeps on operating. They've just lost the data. But the cost to the nation of that theft could be far in excess of any um, ransom payment or damage that a cyber criminal might do with that damage. But from the company's perspective, it's a, it's a cost-free activity, potentially. So there's another misalignment of incentives. The company doesn't see the da- realize the damage that's done from the theft of the data from the institute and that can happen at universities it can happen you know with theft of ip for example um, universities are right at the coalface of developing some of the most sensitive technology uh, that we have in the country um, but they're not necessarily uh, aligned or set up to protect that data from theft that might cause enormous damage to the national interest so companies and academic institutions aren't necessarily having their incentives aligned at the moment. How will the government incentivize companies to ensure that this cost-free data breach by other nations is less likely to occur? Well, first of all, you need to find out what's going on. So a lot of the problem we've got at the moment is that companies aren't obliged to disclose when they've been breached. Uh, And very oftentimes they're, they're not even aware of it. So I think we need to have both you know, greater situational awareness of what's going on and also disclosure uh, when breaches do occur. So mandatory reporting when companies do become aware would become a really important uh, thing to do. I think there's also a need to try and mandate hardening uh, amongst key institutions. So if you're a university working on very sensitive areas of, uh, of research, that could be used, for example, to develop weapon systems uh, by countries that might um, you know, want to use those systems against Australia. Uh, we want to make sure that those universities are not just focusing on the research, which they're really interested in, but also on protecting that research. So I think we need to have a, you know, have a conversation about what are the minimum standards uh, that you have to meet from a cybersecurity point of view if you want to work on really sensitive areas of, of research. Uh, Similarly, if you're a a corporation or an an organisation that's operating in, um, for example, critical infrastructure or really, um, you know, or defence technology, um, maybe there's really important, you know, standards that you have to meet. And we've got some legislation in Australia around critical infrastructure, um, 
but it's it's about operationalizing that, making it work, and making sure those standards are being met. That's the the next step that we've got to meet there. Mm. In relation to cyber policy, how what sort of policy would you envision to tackle different kinds kinds of cyber attacks by different actors, i.e., uh, terrorists, criminals, nation states? How would would you see policy needing to categorise those different actors and have different policy to target them differently or would it be one policy to tackle them all the same? Well, I think there's there's elements of both in that. So if you improve your cybersecurity defences, you're essentially hardening your organisation against all threat actors. Um, so you can do things that, you know, apply to everything even um, if it's not, um, you know, you can just by hardening your defences, you're, you're making yourself harder to attack for everyone. But I do think there are some specific policy initiatives that we need for some of those specific actors. So if you take cyber criminals, for example, one of the big challenges we've got at the moment is ransomware attacks. Now, ransomware attacks are really prevalent, uh, you know, really common in Australia because we pay ransoms. So the p- key policy challenge and, and piece of regulation we need is to ban the payment of ransoms in Australia. If we ban the payment of ransoms, then um, the cyber criminals uh, won't target Australian companies because we don't pay. Now, if you, if you want some evidence of why this would be the case, take, take a look at government departments. They don't get hit with ransomware attacks. It's not because they have great cyber security. It's because they don't pay ransoms and the cyber criminals know it. So they don't bother wasting their time trying to ransom the Australian government because the Australian government won't pay the ransom and they know it. So they go after Australian companies. If the cyber criminals knew that Australian companies couldn't pay the ransom because they were legally blocked from doing it and the government enforced the law, then they would stop targeting Australian criminals. Now, the sad part of that is they're just going to go to other countries that do pay the ransom. So it's not you know, there's a little bit of a moral and ethical challenge here that we've got. Um, but that's up to other countries whether they want to pass similar legislation and, and deal with that challenge themselves. I think for Australia, we should make a decision in our interest, which is to try and stop this problem, and that is you know, blocking the payment of ransoms. Now, I'm not saying that's not without its challenges. There's lots of policy nuance around that, but that's the type of niche piece of legislation, we ne- niche piece of uh, approach we need customised to one of those particular threat actors. So you spoke that there are, you know, obviously some challenges around that sort of policy. You've spoken about the cons as you've uh, spoken about the pros as you've said. What are the cons of having that policy? Well, so one of the big challenges with having a ban on ransom payments is that you'd have to, to be credible, you'd have to enforce the law. So let's imagine an Australian company to small, you know, family business that is crippled by a ransomware attack. If it doesn't pay, it's going to have to, um, it's going to go bankrupt. So the owner of that business is could potentially make the decision that, look, it's illegal to pay ransoms in Australia, but I'm going to go bankrupt if I don't pay this ransom, so I'm going to pay. Now, they pay the ransom um, and they you know, may or may not be able to recover, um, but the Australian government, if they want to make sure, that if they want to protect the entire Australian economy from attacks, they're going to have to enforce the legislation so that the cyber criminals know they won't get any money if they target an Australian business. So they're going to have to prosecute that small business owner. Now, that's a, that's a challenging issue because you're going to have, you know, a government, you know, prosecuting a victim 
for paying a ransom to try and save their family business. So that's that's a problem. But I think there's there's two things to do to you know that can mitigate against that. One is um, at the moment we're hemorrhaging billions of dollars a year to cyber criminals that are using the money for all court kinds of potentially very bad things. So the net um, the net damage we're doing to ourselves is far exceeded by you know the current situation versus a couple of uh, awkward prosecutions we may have to make to enforce the law. Uh, we're not going to have to enforce the law for very long because the cyber criminals will almost immediately stop targeting Australia as soon as they realise the law is going to uh, be effective. And then the other thing we can do is try to provide um, uh, insurance to companies that are hit and support. So in the phase-in period, uh, while companies are still being targeted and the cyber criminals are testing whether the law is going to be enforced or not, uh, instead of leaving companies out on their own, we can say to them, we're going to make you whole. So in return for not paying the ransom, we're going to cover your losses until we get you back up and running and we're going to help you uh, get back up and running. So I think with those kind of measures, you can mitigate against those those challenges. Uh, another big challenge you've got is, you know, are cyber criminals just going to try and wedge us and, and say, well, okay, you're not going to pay ransoms, are you? What We're going to start targeting institutions where we're going to put people's lives at risk. So we're going to, you know, in Germany, for example, they targeted a hospital and um, a, a, a person had to have their ambulance redirected to another hospital uh, and, in, and because of the delay, they died, that patient. Now, that wasn't a case where the government refused to pay ransom. It was just that the, the hospital was hit by a cyber attack. But it shows you how you could potentially target cyber attacks to try to, um, you know, force people's hand and say, well, people are going to die. Now, I think you can have a potential exemption in life-threatening situations where, you know, the head of the ACSC could provide a waiver. Um, so there's ways to, to deal with that. I think you'd want to use that very... Um, with a lot of discretion because you wouldn't want to create a situation where you encouraged attacks on uh, institutions that potentially you know, put people's lives at risk. Um, but again, I don't think, um, well, in the current environment, we're still having attacks that are threatening people's lives. So the Medibank attack is a good example where potentially people's lives are being put at risk by the disclosure of very sensitive information that might impact them in a physical way in the in relationships or environment they're in. Uh, we've seen hospital attacks in Germany that have killed people, you know, and that hasn't been, you know, a result of not paying. It's just that they were their systems were brought down. So people are already being put in life-threatening situations. So to say that we're suddenly going to put people in life-threatening situations is, is, not, is not the case. Uh, I think we just need a lot of support to help and we potentially need some exemptions in, in very rare cases. But in reality... I think what the situation we're going to be in is people will go elsewhere um, rather than try to, you know, find the perfect case in Australia where they can, um, you know, get around the law. In regards to your specific example there where there are life-threatening situations, would you say that's where it becomes almost politically motivated, these individuals or organisations of criminals are politically motivated to change the current policy so they can go back to their old ways and by escalating their acts, it almost turns violent in that sense. 
implicitly violent, would you say that's where it starts to transition over from a criminal to a terrorist? Or would you still consider that individual in that circumstance with the Germany example a criminal because they inadvertently through their attack caused someone's life to end? Would you say that's warranting of a terrorist definition or would you still tackle that as if they're a criminal? Well, I think there's, you know, there's broadly three categories of threat actors. There's activists, there's cyber criminals and there's nation states. Now, they can be a bit of bleed over between mm. them. Um, but I think what you're talking about here is uh, activist groups, potentially, you know, a terrorist group like, you know, Islamic State, which we had, you know, previously um, you know, being you know, a huge issue internationally, that type of group could theoretically um, conduct cyber attacks in a way that, you know, causes, tries to cause, um, you know, life-threatening situations. We haven't seen a lot of that, um, but I think that, you know, it, it's, it's a theoretical possibility. Um, it, would, it takes a lot of effort to conduct these kind of attacks. You know, it's, it's very hard to, you know, organise that in a way at the moment that does cause life-threatening situations, but we are absolutely moving into a world where people are going to start dying from cyber attacks because if you think about the transition we've gone through, um, largely up until this point we've had not very large objects attached to the internet. So we have our, our laptops or our mobile phones. Now, if someone takes over your mobile phone, they can't really kill you with that. Um, they can't cause it to stab you in the heart or, you know, punch you in the head. Um, when we attach driverless cars to the internet uh, or other pieces of, of large equipment that's, that's internet connected and we can take over and control those objects, people are going to start dying if there's cyber attacks that you know, tell every driverless car in Australia to you know, suddenly turn sharp left. So we are moving into a world where we need to have you know, a, a very strong focus on cybersecurity and where there are going to be much more physical risks uh, from the types of devices we're attaching to the internet. So that's where those types of attacks become uh, much more problematic and potentially uh, a focus for crim you know for activist type uh, groups in that sort of terrorist type of sense. Cyber criminals, I think, are a different type of actor because their motivation is making money. So they're not a cyber criminal group that is trying to make money is not going to waste its time trying to find the perfect attack to you know kill Australian civilians um, unless it can deliver them a huge amount of money. Um, so we've seen with Medibank, they're, they're perfectly happy to release sensitive information that may result in some Australians potentially dying, um, but they're only doing it because they want to make money and extort the company to pay a ransom. So they've got no moral compass. Um, you know, they're complete parasites, but they're not doing it because they are motivated by trying to kill as many Australians as possible. Mm. They're motivated because they want to make as much money as possible as quickly as possible. You just spoke about how if driverless cars were connected to the internet, obviously that could uh, increase the likelihood of death from cyber attacks. How will national security policy and domestic cyber policy uh, keep pace or more accurately catch up with the rapid changes and advances in technology and the digital world? Yeah, so this is that's a great question. It's a real challenge. So if we look at current government policy making around the world, it tends to be very reactionary and it tends to be rolled out 
um, after a technology has been ubiquitously deployed. So if you take a, a relatively benign technology but still revolutionary technology like social media, um, you know, more than a decade after the platform has been rolled out and essentially become a universal tool for, for people in Australia, we've had, we had government regulation try to retrospectively regulate that uh, technology. So we didn't really think ahead um, as the technology was first being developed to say, hmm, what impact is this going to have on the, the media? What impact is this going to have on competition? What impact is this going to have on society? Uh, what impact is this going to have on you know, user safety and things like that? So we've had that. We've seen a, you know, an example like that already that's you know, very, very clear for everyone. But we probably have, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of new technologies that are being developed and um, you know will be rolled out very soon um, that are coming down the pipeline where we could be saying um, hey this is this is about to happen um, AI is going to be deployed in lots of different circumstances in and lots of subcategories of AI what do we need to think about in terms of how this is going to drive revolutionary change in our societies and how can we best positions uh, society so that we can um, protect our you know our current way of life and our current sort of approaches um, not saying we don't have to adapt and and do things you know if we can do things better or um, you know not embrace the technology but how do we do it in a way that um, preserves the things that we want to preserve and so I think there we've got a, a bit of a challenge uh, in all countries around the world in that we've We've tended to, because of the experience with, um, I think, social media in particular, we've, we've driven this uh, wedge between government and industry where we're sort of seen in, at loggerheads and, and, and in an antagonistic way. What I think we really need is to work, to have governments and industry working collaboratively to try and identify the technology that's coming down the pipeline and collaboratively develop uh, regulation and legislation that's going to make sure that that technology can be rolled out in societies without causing mass disruption or, or, or issues that um, we, we could have anticipated uh, coming. So I think we need much closer uh, relationships there. And in a lot of these tech races that we're in at the moment, they're becoming geopolitical. So we have you know the Chinese uh, Communist Party articulating that it wants to win these, these particular tech races. Now, that's driving a bit of bifurcation uh, and, a, and a, a demand to work even more closely with the companies that are based in, you know, the democratic world, you know, in the case of Australia. So I think there we have to, we have to make sure there are really close and strong relationships between government and industry and that we're working to try and anticipate the challenges and get regulation uh, and um, oversight happening in advance of ubiquitous deployment. Furthering on talking about technology races and you know, industry and what's not, how do you see Australia's dependence on foreign-controlled microchip technology impacting Australia's ability to manoeuvre effectively and efficiently during high-tension high flashpoints in the Asia and the Indo-Pacific? Uh, well, the, the chip discussion is really interesting. So we've got... Um, we've basically got a very high concentration of aspects of the technology in some countries so if you take fabrication huge chunk of the the high-end fabrication occurs in in taiwan for example so there's a, a 
a critical bottleneck in our uh, supply chain and dependence um, linked to one country, which is probably you know one of the most likely flashpoints for a global conflict um, at the moment. So that's obviously a huge risk, and you see countries around the world making massive investments to try to um, reduce that uh, risk by developing alternative fabrication facilities in the United States, in India, in Europe, uh, and elsewhere. Now, the challenge we've got is that developing uh, fabrication plants is not very easy. Uh, these are incredibly sophisticated facilities. Um, you could not even if even if you wanted to the Australian government could not say overnight we want to build a fabrication plant because we would not have the expertise we would the res it would cost you know tens of billions of dollars to even consider building a facility like the one that would be needed to be at the cutting edge um, and it's it's very very difficult technically to do this the Chinese state has been trying to do it it's been stealing trying to steal the technology trying to um, work out how to do it and it can't do it uh, over many many years of, of trying so it's a, it's a big technical challenge to be able to, to do that and lots of countries are trying to diversify and I think you know some of them will certainly succeed like the United States um, but it's not an overnight solution to just say well we want to be you know have a sovereign capability here in Australia Australia does have a very small um, capability here uh, when it comes to manufacturing. It's not at the cutting edge, but it's at the, the trailing edge. Um, and I think we could um, make wise investments to develop capability at the sort of non-cutting edge uh, level, at least initially, and that would be a really valuable effort, I think, to um, diversify uh, our supply chain and also global supply chain and make a contribution towards that diversification uh, and potentially enable um, a, a growing industry over time moving closer and closer to the to the cutting edge. Um, so I think that would be a really good move. But with sovereignty and sort of, you know, more broadly, supply chain security in these critical and emerging technologies, uh, I think we have to think about it in a trusted ecosystem. We can't imagine that Australia is ever going to be self-sufficient in every single critical and emerging technology uh, imaginable right now. It's just an inconceivable uh, you know, thing to happen in, with a country this size and um, this level of um, you know, growth, the size of the economy and the size of the population. But we do have lots of people, lots of other countries that we can trust. So if you think about Japan, think about the United States. These are countries that we can be, you know, almost a hundred percent certain they will they will help us out and supply us with the technologies uh, that we want if they have them. So if we start thinking about that broader ecosystem, I think we can think about, uh, you know, onions of trusted supply. So networks of countries that we can rely on to provide us with the technology that we need, and that's the way I think we should start to think about elements of, of sovereign capability. Speaking to your analysis of an onion approach to developing high-tech national sovereignty, what would you encourage future policy in regards to Australia's domestic industrial capacity to supply itself with advanced technology without being in inhibited by supply chain implications, as we've seen with COVID? How do you think we can balance a multinational onion approach to ensuring this high-tech capability whilst also ensuring that we'll not, we will not be impacted as heavily as 
by supply chain implications as we have been in the past? Yeah, look, I think we have to look in a really sophisticated way at where we might have potential gaps in terms of access. So, you know, if you look at some of the behaviour we've seen from China in in recent years, uh, it's demonstrated a willingness to uh, withhold supply or, or withhold, you know, use trade coercively in its relationship with Australia. Now, that basically tells you that you can't rely on China to provide you with the things that you might regard as essential because it could use that uh, coercively against you to you know try and reverse a, a decision you've made in your national interest. So it wouldn't be sensible to rely on China for anything that's critical, whether it's a technology or whether it's a you know a, a basic product. Um, so we have to make sure that we have alternative supplies when it comes to sourcing things from from China. Um, especially in critical and emerging technologies. So I think we need to look broadly at all the technologies that we think might be concerning. The government's announced a, a rev- an effort to try to identify what those technologies are. Uh, the last government came up with a, a list of its own, uh, and that was there were 60-something technologies on that list. So looking at those 60 technologies and saying, you know, how, how are we placed vis-a-vis China, uh, and not just Australia, but the countries, you know, all countries that we can trust to supply us. Now, most countries around the world, we can probably uh, rely on a lot of the the big technology centres of excellence around the world to supply Australia with those technologies once that, you know, if and when they develop them. So we don't need to have everything here in-house built in in Australia, but we have to know that, you know, amongst a, a grouping of different countries, we can reliably access it. Now, if there's some technologies where none of our trusted partners are leading in and we're potentially going to have a big gap, that's the type of area where we might want to make a a big investment as a nation and say we don't think any of our allies and partners uh, have have the edge in this technology. Either individually or as as a grouping, we need to make some big investments in that particular technology to make sure that we don't have a gap five, ten years from now. So that's the way I think we should be be looking at that, um, and having I think there's also the other piece of this is the economic opportunity. So um, Australia has you know has some fantastic uh, educational institutions that um, train a huge number of the world's top tier global talent across a whole spectrum of uh, these. Um, emerging and critical technologies. So we should look at ways that we can retain that talent and build um, domestic industries here in those in those technologies because that's going to be the, the growth drivers of, of economies in the in the years ahead. Um, so we've done some work here at ASPE looking at you know where the global talent sits globally, you know, where it's where the education happens and where the people actually end up uh, working. And Australia is a is a big global centre when it comes to training this talent because we have such excellent universities. So to me, one of the, the big lessons from that is how do we, what can we do uh, as a country to make sure that more and more of that talent stays here in Australia and builds up local industries themselves rather than uh, going off uh, overseas to other countries. That's, that's a big lesson for us, I think, and a, a big opportunity. I would like to t- touch on two points you mentioned there. Would you perhaps be able to detail further the specific gaps that you perhaps see going forward in 5, 10, uh, 20, 30, whatever um, time period you'd like to choose? 
what specific technologies do you see that gap emerging in going forward? So we've been doing a project here uh, for a year at Aspie that has tried to provide empirical data on where, um, where, where every country around the world is, is on, um, I think we did about 40 different technologies. And so what that research is going to show is where these gaps potentially sit and there's different ways to, to look at that. You can look at publication data, you can look at um, uh, patent data, you can look at lots of different ways to, to, um, to assess that, those potential gaps. But that team is, is doing that, that work and crunching that data, huge numbers of, of publications and, and other sources to try and identify those gaps. So um, I think we'll, that... I have to say, you know, I'll, I'll give, take that one on notice, but um, in the next few months you'll be seeing some of that work uh, come out and that will be highlighting specific gaps where um, Australia and its partners have potential gaps vis-a-vis -vis China, for example. When you're talking about ensuring that talent stays within Australia and incentivizing talent to come to Australia, this is more talking from a global point of view and from a moral point of view as well how do you how do you propose that we balance the increased instability other countries would experience from brain drain and our own national security by attracting that talent how do you balance those two sides of the coin yeah i mean look i think this is a real challenge not just in the tech world but you know in the medical field mm. and um aged care and, and lots of different areas where where you know Australia, for doctors, for example, we're um, bringing in a lot of doctors from overseas because we aren't training enough doctors here in Australia. So, um, and that that's a you know zero sum game game in a way. We're taking doctors from another part of the world and bring them bring them here, and it takes so long to train a doctor that um, that's coming at the cost of someone else. Um, so I think look that that's one of the challenges, um, but it's also you know the reality of a globalized world where talent is free to move wherever it wants mm -hmm. to move. And if you look at where talent uh, travels to, um, Australia has, you know, if you look at the top tier uh, of global researchers across, you know, a whole bunch of different critical emerging technologies, Australia, you know, a whole bunch of them are born in Australia, which is great. You know, relative to our size, we do really well. Um, we, we, do, we gain even more when it comes to PhD, where people have, you know, not just done their BA in Australia, but when they come from overseas to do their PhD and we get a big, big gain. Uh, and people come here because it's great universities. It's um, a nice place to live. There's there's lots of, it, you know, um, there's presumably good grants and incentives around that, that university piece, which is why people are coming here to study. Um, the, the question then is, you know, where do they go back to? And they can go back to everywhere they've come from. Some of those, some of the people are coming from countries that we're competing with. Some of them are coming from countries that we work really closely with. Um, I think we're talking about, you know, the top tier of, of global talent. Um, and so I think, to me, that, that talent is, is highly mobile uh, and Australia's in a competitive race with all other countries around the world to try and attract that talent and not just, you know, our own talent, and keeping it here, but keeping um, you know foreigners that come here to do their PhDs or have already done their PhDs elsewhere to get them to come and work here. So I think we should be actively competing in that in that space. Um, it is you know it's a it's a it's a competition. We're in a free market, um, so I think that's that's part of it. But yeah, that's what I think we should be doing. And 
um, that's what all our competitors are doing as well. Great answer to a very tough question. Um, regarding your experience working with philanthropist Andrew Forrest or Twee Forrest as he is commonly referred to or known as, how can cyber technology and IT be used to promote peace while decreasing and potentially uh, and hopefully eliminating human rights atrocities like modern slavery? Um, well, I think we've, we're, we're entering to this world where the, we're about to transition, I think, our our business models. So if you look at, um, you know, someone um, in my generation, we, we lived through the tra- the introduction of PC computers. So mm-hmm. people, uh, when I was born, did not have a PC generally in their, their home and, um, you know, didn't didn't use computers in their day-to-day businesses. They used paper and faxes and, and things like that. It was a supercomputer in your pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we, we moved into the world where people had to learn how to, type on a computer, use, you know, word processes and Excel spreadsheets and things like that. That was a new skill that all workforces and university students had to had to learn as a sort of new thing. Um, I think we're going into a, a, a next phase of that where we're going to have to enter into transformational business processes. Um, that, that first phase was really transporting things we did in the physical world, like hand write out a note on a piece of paper. We just changed from doing that and typed it into a computer, which provided it was basically the, exactly the same thing but just allowed, you know, easier transmission because we could then email the digital version to somebody else rather than, you know, posting uh, the letter. Um, what I think we've now got a whole bunch of tools that will enable us to do business in a very different way so we can, for example, manipulate uh, very large data sets with different types of um, data um, that is beyond human um you know, processing powers. Uh, so that's a it's a it's a stru- it's a very different way of, of creating insights and, and business operations. We can have automated, increasingly automated processes for a lot of the things that we would do either at, in university or in in research or in um, business processes um, that don't require humans at all. Um, so to me, we've, we've got to apply these same technologies into the philanthropic and civil society world as well. Uh, And that provides, you know, lots of the transformational opportunities we have in business or academia as well. Um, So if you take, you know, modern slavery or which is essentially a a supply chain issue. So, um, you know, people that have solar panels on their their roof in Australia um, may not be aware that they probably have, they were probably um, at the at the point of starting mined using forced labour in China. Um, now, that's a, that's a supply chain challenge because the Australian population doesn't really, and the people that have solar panels on their roofs um, may not have that, have a clear shot of where that supply chain came from and who was involved in the production of that supply chain. And it's not just forced labour. You might have, you know, really bad labour conditions where somebody's experiencing, you know, exposure to hazardous chemicals or not being paid by a particular employer on that supply chain. Once you can start um, with technology, for example, uh, documenting that entire supply chain, linking that supply chain up with the labour practices of the maybe 20 different companies involved in, in that production, then you can start generating insights to c- consumers and others to say, you know, this supply chain here has XYZ issues with it that you might want to be aware of. You know, one of the people in the supply chain doesn't pay their, their labourers properly. 
Another person in the supply chain uses forced labour. Uh, another person in the supply chain exposes their workers to hazardous uh, materials. This other supply chain, on the other hand, um, has has none of those issues. So, um, and you know, you might pay, you know, ten cents more in the dollar on for that cleaner supply chain than this one. So, you know, the, the choice is up to you. And then you could also have a situation where government might want to step in and say, if if you if we can see visibly, you know, what's going on in these supply chains, and we have a choice between a clean one and a uh, a dirty one, um, we're going to force you to go with the clean one, even if you have to pay more for it. So that's the kind of way I think you could start harnessing some of this technology to get a, a deeper insight into you know the conditions that people are working in uh, and maybe uh, drive change that way. Before I ask you for your must-read book suggestions, um, I'll quickly give you a book, Internet Wars, The Struggle for Power in the 21st Century, a little plug. I'm also asked you to do it. Um, would you like to give us a quick overview of your intentions behind writing the book and a quick personal blurb? <laughs> well, look, thanks Thanks for the plug. Um, <laughs> so I wrote that book quite a while ago mm. when I was at Brookings. And essentially what it was looking at was how um, tech, tech monopolies were going to emerge and, um, and how that was going to impact society and some of the challenges that we were going to have from um, the, the tendency towards monopoly that a lot of the tech industry has as a sort of structural element. So at the time, um, there was a lot of thinking that um, the tech industry was so dynamic that it would um, do away with this challenge of monopoly and we just have an endless cycle of um, new, new industries being built um, and that it was really going to create a sort of perfect market situation. My argument was that it was in fact a sort of structurally designed to be a monopoly um, because of a whole bunch of different factors and that that would then create challenges for governments in terms of regulation and the way that they engaged with some of these uh, companies. Um, I'm, I'm glad that you know, it turned out, I think, to be uh, right on the money in terms of how things have, have played out. Um, but yeah, so that's that's sort of what the book's about. Um, and sorry, your second question was any must reads apart from your own book, of course. Uh, yeah, um, I don't know if I'd, I'd put my book in a in a must read category, but it's um, pl please do have take a look. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, I I studied the classics when I was um, at university, so I'm a, a big fan of the um, um, the classics. So my my favorite book of all time uh, is a is a compilation of the of Plato's works, uh, the Last Days of Socrates. It's a it's a great book uh, in my uh, estimation. Um, but in terms of the the tech world, I think a, a real um, a really brilliant book is um, Tim Wu's Master Switch. is a is a mm. really um, great uh, great work if you're interested in in looking at things like um, tech you know monopoly and market dynamics. Awesome, awesome. Just to finish this off with the last question, um, feel free to just touch on it briefly. For our delegates and our wider audience who engage with the ACSS podcast, what advice do you have to someone attempting to gain knowledge in the cyberspace and increase their metaphorical yet somewhat material to toolbox regarding cyber and IT skills? I think jumping in, one of the, the great things about this space is that there, there are not a lot of formal qualification skills it hasn't been professionalized in the same way that other, you know, engineering has or, um, you know, 
medicine or, or being a lawyer. So it's still at a, a sort of early stage of, of professionalisation in terms of the field. So that means it's wide open for people to, to teach themselves, um, take some classes. Uh, there's, a, there's great resources online in terms of you know, learning and understanding the space. So jumping in online to some of the, you know, learn how to code um, classes is free and easy. Um, Googling your way around to sort of work out how the internet architecture works, um, it's it's a fascinating area. And I think one of the, the most interesting areas about this space is that it's very much like the early stages of philosophy in the sense that we're st- still trying to develop conceptual frameworks for how this works and the implications of uh, the different tech technologies that are coming out um, so it's a really dynamic field a really interesting field and still one where um, there's a lot of need for conceptual thinking and um, people to really put some horsepower into understanding and explaining the world that we're creating and we'll be speaking about how that human and it interaction develops in regards to complex systems with an upcoming podcast with leslie seebeck so thank you so so much for your time today folks appreciate it thanks for having me it's great to chat thank you